1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me Alexis James to tell us all about his book uh, that's just come out from Pitch Publishing, titled Unsung, Not All Heroes Wear Kits, which is a fabulous title. And as the title suggests, um, this book introduces us to really important people in a lot of different sports. But people that we probably don't know about, Um, the people behind the scenes, whether they are F1 mechanics, athletic starters, which to be honest, I wasn't entirely sure what that was before I read the book, but we're going to get into it. Um, Football chaplains, rugby medics, and all sorts of other people, like the people who make snow for the Olympics, which is quite cool. Um, This book helps us understand who these people are what their jobs actually entail, and takes us behind the scenes of a bunch of very cool sports. So I'm very excited, Alexis, to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
0: Thanks for having me on, Miranda. It's uh, much appreciated.
1: Before we dive into um, all of the different fabulous stories of the book itself, we probably should start with some useful foundations. So can you please introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: sure uh, good question uh, uh, my name is Alexis James I'm a writer based in Northumberland in the north of England um, I, I focus predominantly on sport and travel uh, and I've got a particular interest I've always had a particular interest on in the fringes of sort of both areas whether that be little-known history or unknown personalities um, and I think it was 2017 um, I began a blog um, called offfield and it, the tagline was the untold and unsung. So I guess that's a a bit of a prototype to to what was to come, really. But it featured stories about everything from camel racing in Dubai, uh, a football tournament for unrecognised nations, uh, the first ever Scottish beach volleyball team, uh, and a story about the the Ryder Cup, Greenkeepers. Um, And I suppose it was this latter story that that ended up essentially being a a prototype, like I say, to to what would become uh, the book. Um, I, I guess there was just something in this story of of the the tireless greenkeepers, these course superintendents who'd spend upwards of five years meticulously cultivating a golf course uh, for the eyes of the world to descend on it for just three days. Um, And when I spoke to these greenkeepers, they provided really quite an incredibly unique and informed insight into the event and uh, whether it was how best to play the course or its pitfalls or hidden advantages, Um, And they also provided a ton of really quite entertaining stories of camaraderie, hard work, uh, and the commitment to their work. Um, So when I attended the Ryder Cup, I was fortunate to attend the Ryder Cup in Paris as a fan in in 2018. Uh, I I did so after I'd written this story and I had a completely new appreciation of the hard work that goes on behind the scenes of of, of sporting events like this. Um, And I noted how the hard graft of these facilitators often went uncredited and unnoticed. And I just thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book and, and, and shine a light on, on these people in sport um, who quite often only get any attention paid to them as when, when they've done something wrong uh, or when they've made an error. Um, so it was that really that, that made me think there might be a book in this. And I guess the final domino to fall was, was the pandemic uh, because I, I wrote this proposal during the first lockdown um, and sent it off to, to the publishers, whilst there was a sort of a rising sentiment in the country for, for recognising our unsung heroes. So it felt like a good time to, to begin writing.
1: That's a lot of lovely things all coming together in the book, um, and I think makes a lot of sense reading it, kind of that idea of, oh yeah, we do know about these people, only when something goes wrong and so it's quite (laughs) nice to see what it looks like when it goes right and sort of understand um all the things behind it um I've not been to any of these particular sports since reading the book obviously it's been was quite recent um but I'm very curious now to go to some of them and see kind of looking at oh yeah that person over there that I probably wouldn't have noticed before oh I wonder if they're (laughs) doing this job um but that does in fact Uh, make my next question kind of something I'm even more curious about, which is that uh, obviously starting this as a blog, a blog doesn't have word limits or page limits or anything like that. You can have as many blog posts as you want. Um, That's not true in a book though. So somehow you've chosen 12 uh, chapters, 12 different types of people to talk about. Why twelve, and how did you manage to narrow it down?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 one of those questions that maybe um, doesn't have quite the insightful answer I should probably provide, but I mean, there there are um, a lot of common themes that that connect many of the chapters, and although each chapter is obviously a self-contained narrative, um, all about a different role behind the scenes, um, and uh, you, you, you know you've mentioned. You mentioned a few of them there in your intro, but we've got athletic starters, performance chefs, Formula One mechanics, winter Olympic snowmakers, kit designers, motor pilots, chaplains, anti-doping. So there's, you know, it does at first seem very random. And I guess it's probably worth saying that originally when I planned the book, um, I had planned to write around 16 chapters. Um and I guess uh, that was mainly because before I began the interviews and the reporting stage, I wasn't entirely sure how much there would be to write on each chapter. So I did provision for around 16 to 20. Uh, but I suppose I was pleasantly surprised at what I was able to, to dig out and discover. Um, and then on top of that, the, the eagerness of the, the subjects um, to speak to me was, was really quite overwhelming. And, and the amount of stories that they, that they wanted to share and so, as my deadline approached and my remaining word count diminished, I, I ended up having to be really quite ruthless, um, and I, I cut it down to, to twelve chapters in the end. Um, and, and I suppose there was there was an idea at one point that I should just stick to to one sport, um, especially football um, or soccer for any American listeners, uh, particularly from. Uh, a, a marketing perspective, and it would probably sell more books. Uh, but I preferred the, the the richer tapestry and and variation that a, a broad range of, of sports would provide. Uh, it, it also meant that hopefully there's something in there for every sports fan, um, because I think I think particularly a, a few of the chapters, certainly the chaplains and the anti doping officials, for example, they, they, they tend, tend to cover more than one sport. So I, there's around two dozen sports featured in in the book there's about well there's over 40 sporting personalities so although there's there's only 12 chapters that the, you know there's quite a lot crammed in there um and I certainly say you don't need to be an expert or have any in-depth knowledge of any of the sports featured that's the, the way I wanted to write the book um I, I'm certainly no expert on any of them really I'm, I'm just a an, a an enthusiast with an inquisitive mind uh and an eagerness to to, to peel a layer behind the headlines so this isn't a book filled with stats or, or jargon or analytical deep dives. It's a book about stories and, and characters that are rarely featured elsewhere in, in sports writing. Um, and hopefully it's written in a way that you can you can you pick and choose the chapters. There's no requirement necessarily to begin at page one. Um, mm. So I did end up settling on 12 chapters and I, I sort of – I think I mentioned in the intro that 12 did feel apt because it, you know, in, in football and certainly other sports that the 12th man is a term that's commonly used to de- de- describe a, a passionate home crowd whose commitment has inspired or propelled the team to victory whilst in, in, in crickets, the 12th man's the, the poor sap who hasn't quite made the field, but, you know, could be required at any moment. Uh, and I guess many of those featured in the book could possibly relate to, to both descriptions really. Um, and a lot of these roles go, go way back in in history uh, and and some are more recent creations born of sports increasing professionalism. But I, I'd say all of them now are probably indispensable to, to their sport.
1: I think that um, that's a really important point that you don't have to be an expert in any of the sports to enjoy it. I certainly, <laughs> there are definitely sports in there that I don't know the last time I <laughs> thought about them. Um, and yet, That didn't prevent me from going, oh, okay. not even sure I know what job that is. Like, I don't even know if I have a mental image for it. Yeah. But I can understand the story and enjoy and appreciate it. Um, And then there are sports I do know more about. And I'm like, oh, I've always wondered about that. Okay. Um, So I think that in a lot of ways, it's 12 different ways into the book. Um, Mm -hmm. If you choose to start with something you are more familiar with, that might then open up the ones you're less Familiar with, um, and that's something I certainly kind of immediately understood as a reader. But I'm interested in this. Uh, what you've just mentioned—the idea of they look quite different, but there's some continuities, there's some threads between them. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about what you see those threads as being.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, we've kind of touched on on probably one of the main ones, which is that you know the, these people are very rarely um, spoken about, unless. There's, there's been a, you know, some sort of horrendous error. Uh, whether that be that the, the, the gun doesn't go off, or there's a problem with the false start readings, or if the picture cuts out during cycling coverage, or if the football pitch is in poor condition, or if a pit stop, for example, a, a Formula One mechanic, if you see them on TV for longer than four seconds, something's usually gone wrong. Um, so I guess that's kind of the main overarching theme that was brought up time and time again by these people that, oh, you're interested in talking to me, but you know, usually people only talk to me when, when I've cocked up somewhere down the line. Um, so I, I guess there was, that was the main thread. Um, but there, there was, there's also the fact that, you know, these people are, uh, they're seen by outsiders, um, to be perhaps personnel, uh support personnel perhaps when actually the more you speak to them uh and the more you interact with them you realize that these people are just as um dedicated and passionate and driven as some of the you know top athletes um so for example the 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 mechanics are are, are a good example really because we look at a mechanic perhaps and see them as a walking talking driver's toolbox Um, but if you speak to a mechanic, uh, particularly the ones I spoke to um, at, at an elite level, the way they talk about the sport and championships they've won or races they've, you know, been on a podium for, they talk about it in the first person as if you know they were in the car themselves. And and to be fair, that there's that's understandable because um, to most people looking at Formula One, they probably think, oh, that's just it's all about the driver, but it's actually far from it. You know that the um, the car isn't isn't built. When when it gets to the racetrack, it's it's the mechanics who put it together um, on the eve of a of a qualifying, um, and and so it's I guess it's um, it's just the way in which they are they they see the driver as the last component for them to win their race rather than than it being the other way around, um, and I guess the the, the, the other, one of the other threads speaking journalistically and from a writer's perspective is just how um, how how pleasing it was and how easy it was to get access to these people uh, because particularly in, in sort of elite level sport, it's increasingly difficult to, to speak to the athletes to get any sort of access to them. Uh, they're media savvy. They're, you know, very well trained. They're quite often ingrained. It's ingrained in them uh, to be quite uh, dubious of anyone asking them questions, which, you know, in a lot of respects is fair enough. Uh, yet when it came to the people I spoke to for this book, they they couldn't wait to speak to me. And um, you know, there, there, there were, as I say, I, I mentioned earlier, it was it was written in between lockdowns, so quite a lot of the interviews were initially done uh, over Zoom on on video chat and whatnot. Um, but thankfully, I was eventually able to get out and, and meet well over half of them in person, and, and they couldn't wait to, to sort of bring me into their homes, their places of work. You know, I was able to shadow them and see their their their, their skills. Uh, firsthand, really. And, and I guess it, there was that sort of really sort of refreshing uh, atmosphere around around the project in that respect.
1: That's a really lovely um, sensation when interviewees want to talk to you that I think <laughs> a lot of listeners will go, oh, yeah, that was nice when that happened. And a lot of others will be listening with a bit of envy. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to include that. Um, now that we've got some foundations of who you are, what brought you to this and the breadth of what the book is covering and kind of the ways into it, Uh, I'm going to use my dictatorial position as interviewer and essentially lead us on a highlights tour through the book pretty much based on what I think would be interesting questions to have you answer. Uh, So we're probably not going to do equal justice to all 12 of those chapters, um, but hopefully we will do justice to at least some of them to get us um of the book so uh we're going roughly in the order that the book is in but as you've already mentioned readers can kind of enter where they will um so this idea of an athletic athletic starter which again not entirely sure i knew what that was when i read the term uh but these are the people that fire the starting gun quite like at the most basic level how does someone get that job how how do you become like a world-class athletic starter the person that Pulls the starting gun for Usain Bolt.
0: Sure. Uh, well, so the, the person who features mostly in that chapter is is, um, is a chap called Alan Bell, um, and I suppose if you if 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 you want to go the route that he did, then he he was a uh, a top high jumper, but um, he got injured, so that put paid to his athletics career, um, and then he was asked to officiate at his at his local club which I think he expected uh, would be to judge the the high jump as, as most people would expect. And in fact, he was just handed a, he, he was handed a pair of guns. Um, and despite his trepidation, he decided to give it a go at to basically starting races, uh, and 45 years on he's, he's now in his seventies, but he remains the country's top ranked athletic starter. And he's overseen events as prestigious as the Olympics and the world championships and, and everything in between. Um, and he's probably most famous, or possibly rather infamous, for disqualifying um, Usain Bolt in uh, 2011 at the World Championships in, in Daegu. Um, that came two years after Allen had ratified Bolt's world record at uh, the 2009 Championships, which remains a world record today. It's uh, it's still the 9.58. It's still the fastest 100 meters in in history. Um, And so he fired the start and pistol for that. And he couldn't wait to tell me that it was only officially a world record when he signed the actual record. Uh, And it was his 17th (laughs) of the time. So he's, you know, he's got, um, he's got front row seats to sporting history Uh, and it is a voluntary role. It's worth me adding that. Um, It's something he sort of fell into. Um, But he, he, so he's got stories to tell from all over the world. He's interacted with greats, Linford Christie, Jessica Ennis, um, David Rudisha—we've mentioned Usain, Usain Bolt. But the thing with Alan, as was the case with with the other um, athletic starters that I spoke to, and, and most other athletics officials throughout this country, to be fair, is that he still volunteers his time to oversee um, local and, and youth events as well, which which is vital um, at a, a grassroots level. Um, so when I met up with him it wasn't at a, a professional event, but it was, it was at a, a youth league meet here in Northumberland where I live. Um, and that's where he he went through the, the tricks of the trade. Um, so he told me that the first objective was wherever possible to go was to go unnoticed, um, which I, I did find funny for, for someone who's essentially got the job of holding a gun in public. Um, but the idea is, which again, you know, it aligns to the the, um, the common trends that I, I mentioned earlier. Is if you do your job and nobody watching on in the stands or at home notices you, then everything's probably gone okay. Um, and and the other skill you mentioned was to to study the idiosyncrasies of of each athlete before they they take to their blocks, um, and this will allow starters to spot when showmanship crosses the line in, in, in the gamesmanship. Um, so you know everyone or most people will know Usain Bolt's theatrics for the for the TV, you know, just before he'd, he'd, um, be, he'd begin his run. Um, but it's up to people like Alan to know the pre-race traits of essentially the entire field, whether that's jumping on the spot or kissing crucifixes or just, you know, uh, closing the eyes, whatever it is, it allows a starter to know that the, that the race is going to be won via feats of athleticism rather than, unsporting mind games, for example. Um, And then the other thing Alan told me was that it's about knowing when the time is right to summon the athletes and then fire the gun. Uh, Because I think, contrary to to what most might expect, is that, um, particularly given the the pressures of TV scheduling, um, is that there's no set, standardised time between the word set and the pulling of the trigger. It's down to the athletic starter to judge the atmosphere of the time, to ensure that all of the athletes have reached their final position. Um, And it's an instinctive call based on the race and the occasion. Um, And then I guess finally, the other thing Alan told me was the most important factor is to be scrupulously fair. It's a word that he, it's a term that he he kept repeating time and time again. Um, And that is essentially regardless of who is in the race, you must uphold the rules strictly and, and fairly, even if that requires making unpopular decisions like like he did in, in 2011 when most of the world was watching, thinking Usain Bolt's about to break this world record and, and Alan had to be the guy to say, on your bike, you know, you've, you've gone too early, fired that second gun, I'm afraid you've got to walk. Um, and so if you can do all that, you can become a, a world class athletic starter. It's completely unpaid, but you know, you do get to travel the world and, and meet, you know, the most famous faces in the sport. Um and I would recommend you sign up because uh they're really short on officials. There's another factor that, that Alan and his colleagues remind me that, you know, this he he was now tutoring uh, um up and coming athletic starters. And when I was there, he said, oh, I'm, I'm teaching the next generation here. And he, and he introduced me and it was a guy called Mickey and he was 61 years old. Uh, so that's it's another side of, of, of uh, officiating in athletics. Is there's, there's a real dearth of, um, of officials coming through, unfortunately.
1: I learned a lot from that chapter. I definitely didn't know that it was up to the starter when they pulled their gun, as you mentioned. Um And I thought it was really interesting contrasting it with some of the other chapters that I think we'll start talking about in a minute, Um, just how, what the range is in these roles between the ones that are entirely unpaid, even though they're incredibly important versus the ones that are really, really, really super well-paid, but also quite invisible to the layperson. And I found sort of the variation in that across the chapters really interesting. Um, And that's kind of why I'm asking this next one uh, next, um, about the snowmakers, the people that make snow. And of course, it's more complicated than that. Um, But there's a whole lot of science behind this. There's a lot of business behind it. Um, It's certainly not kind of one person by themselves, the way that you've just described with the athletic starters. Um, and I think, uh, so that was different. But on the other hand, this chapter does a lot of similar things to the athletic starter one in that it dispels perhaps popular myths about what this job actually does. Um, And one of them in particular that caught my attention was the idea of artificial snow um, playing God. Um, So given what you've gleaned from the people that are involved in um, snowmaking for things like Winter Olympics, to what extent is being a snowmaker playing God?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I, I think in... The Snowmakers chapter. I think I start the chapter in um, with a tale ahead of uh, the Winter Olympics in twenty fourteen, which which were held in in Sochi in in Russia. Um, and during the Olympic torch, really, it passed through the remote Siberian town of um, Gorno Altaysk. And and while there, the organisers actually asked the local shamans to to pray for snow. Um, now, this is a region where the annual temperature averages uh, minus three degrees Celsius. So the shamans probably thought this is probably the, the easiest gig they're ever going to get. But the snow wasn't intended for the Altai Republic. It was, it was for the subtropical city of, of Sochi, as I mentioned, which was 5,000 kilometres away on, on the Black Sea coast. Now, this is a renowned beach resort, and it's obviously a strange choice to host the Winter Olympics, Um, But it is reflective of a a common trend by the organisers to host the games in in what are warmer climates. Now, that aligned with the effect of climate change is is obviously posing an increasing challenge for winter sports um, as temperatures rise and and, and viable venues reduce. And it means for organisers of snow sports events like the Winter Olympics, they're they're being forced to find increasingly innovative ways to to ensure that everything can go ahead as, as planned so when when the games began in 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 Sochi it did at least on tv look exactly as a as a winter olympics is expected to look um you know it's a, a winter wonderland now call me a cynic but this had nothing to do with shamanistic miracles um as as you allude to in in, in your question there, there's no need to to pray to god because actually these days quite often you can play god uh, and the reason we can do that is thanks to companies like SMI snowmakers who I, I spoke to uh, for the book. Now they they were formed in 1974. I think they're down. That's their third generation snowmakers now, and they they've got snow guns that resemble jumbo jet engines, and they've been everywhere from to from Sarajevo, Sarajevo to Salt Lake, Calgary, uh, most recently uh, Pyeongchang in, in 2018, and it means that these days much of the the white canvas on which uh olympic athletes have have made history it hasn't actually come from the heavens it's it's come from machines built in in michigan usa michigan usa by the likes of smi snowmakers um and in such it was estimated in the end when it when it went ahead that 80 percent that of the snow was machine made i say machine made because i've <laughs> i've been asked to do so by the snowmakers who as you say don't like the term artificial snow because it's um it, it, it's, you know, it's, exa- it's exactly the same. So they tell me, uh, as, 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 um, as natural snow. So they, they, they like to say it's uh, it's machine made snow. Uh, it comes out, it looks exactly the same and behaves exactly the same as two week old natural snow. But the only, the only difference is that while natural snow sometimes takes hours or, or days to form as it's going through the sky. Uh, these guys are, are forming that snow crystal somewhere between three and 15 seconds. Um, So, you know, these days, I think it was 80% in Sochi in Pyeongchang in 2018. Um, SMI built a a brand new lake that could store 33 million gallons of water. And and that number, um, reached 98%, um, of machine made snow. And and when the games began in, in Beijing in 2022, there there wasn't expected to be a, a drop of natural snow in existence. Um, so essentially, a, a modern-day Winter Olympics is, is hosted on a, on a film set. And, you know, for reasons we're all becoming too aware of, it's a trend that, that isn't likely to change anytime soon because, you know, um, you know climate, climate change forecasts are, are showing that the, the amount of, um, of the previous Winter Olympic venues, only one is is likely to be viable in, in less than 50 years for a return of, of the Winter Olympics. Um, but obviously, the, the, the problem with snowmaking is it requires a lot of water. Uh, it also requires a lot of energy, and sometimes it doesn't always work. It's you know, if the temperature is above freezing, it, it's not. It's unlikely to work. So, as part of this chapter, I also spoke to um, a guy called Miko Martikainen, who is a, a snowmaker from Finland. He's nicknamed the the Snow Whisperer, um, and his innovation is what he calls eternal snow and and he's come up with these huge reflective blankets that are able to preserve snow for weeks and months even in temperatures of over 20 degrees um and, and it, 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 he was there in 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 beijing he was there at a test event and he, his methods broke records i think it stored snow for for over 220 days at an average temperature of 23 degrees and his cal he calculated that um his snow storage techniques could, could save Winter Olympic hosts fifty million dollars in 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 water infrastructure because it would they wouldn't have to build these snow making ponds and, and all the the you know the the power that requires pushing this gravity uphill. Um but for reasons he didn't want to go into too much detail about, uh Beijing opted not to use his services. He he was there in Sochi, but Beijing decided that they wanted to spend uh, millions of dollars on on infrastructure instead um and i guess we'll leave that one to, to uh, for people to speculate as to why it might, that might have been but regardless people like smi and, and miko are, are proving increasingly important to to the future of of the winter olympics and, and and winter sports in a increasingly warming world
1: i think listeners at this point um can are going to be able to understand why it's so difficult to only ask you essentially one question per chapter Um, (laughs) because there's so much that I could ask you about that answer and about other things in the chapter. But I will rein myself in and move on um, to the next um, unseen aspect because I think that was one of the really interesting implications. You sort of mentioned the idea of a film set um, that as spectators, especially spectators on TV, we don't notice that the snow isn't real because we don't see that only one strip of mountain has, has yeah. snow and that around it on every side is actually mud or dirt or whatever else it would be if there weren't for these machines. Um, and we only see the kind of picture perfect bit, which in some senses is very much the case if we move completely to a different bit of sport of football kits. Um, because it turns out there's a whole bunch of unseen stuff that goes into the kits that then become incredibly prevalent incredibly present on kids on people on the street on wherever Um, at least if the kit is a good one and the team is usually doing well yeah um, that helps and I thought this was interesting because there is in some senses such a visibility of all things football related it's one of the sports that's very available for people to find out about and people are fans tend to be so invested in kits that especially now with t-shirt printing or whatever people can make up their own kits it's increasingly easy to do it so i was fascinated to learn that there's actually still loads about what goes into making a football kit that most of us are actually still not aware of Mm. what are some of those things
0: yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I think what you allude to, you, you, you get a lot of um, uh, concept kits on social media as well. Uh, and, and so one of the things that the kit designers I spoke to would commonly, I'm going to say complain, they had they, they some reservations about every time there was a kit release, social media being what it is, tended to be split down the middle as to whether it was uh, a favourite of the fans or not. But what is increasingly common um, is that fans are able to design their own sort of alternative versions. And these quite often are passed around and say, well, why couldn't they have done this instead? Uh, and kit designers were keen to to point out that actually there is a lot more to it than simply doing a nice Photoshop uh, of, a, of a, you know, attractive looking kit. Uh, you know, there, there are um, plenty of uh, restrictions and details that they have to abide by. Um, and in particular, they're allocated a budget for each kit, um, which which can be swallowed up in, in ways that aren't always apparent to the average fan. But I was told that everything you see on that kit costs money, whether that's a stitched badge, or a heat transfer or a choice between a V-neck and a polo collar. Um, but I, I, I think one of the things that struck me was that, um, you know, that, from a marketing perspective, there needs to be a story to each shirt as well. So it's not just about designing something for the sake of it looking nice. Um, And I think I mentioned in the book that the need to come up with a new narrative every season uh, starts to stretch credibility a bit. Um, When I think the example I used was Umbro um, released the Republic of Ireland's new shirt in 2022, and it was said to be inspired by, and I quote, the unsystematic shapes and varying sizes of the fields of our homeland. I mean, if you can make any sense of that, you know, um, but they the best concepts combine storytelling with with function. Um, and, and Rob Warner was, was one of the kit designers at Puma in 2006, when he was tasked, uh, to design a number of world cup shirts on a brief to get players to the ball faster. Um, so they developed a the material that was tested in a low vos- low velocity wind tunnel um to and it, they ended up creating something that, that gave players a 70 centimeter advantage in aerodynamics over a 30 meter sprint um which doesn't sound like a lot but given given the fine margins involved in in elite sport is, is quite a big difference uh and so the science there drove the aesthetic um, and it offered the players wearing these puma shirts um probably a, a more of a psychological advantage over a necessarily you know physical one um even the weight difference I think Rob said it was was the, to, compared to the next lightest shirt was was half a snickers <laughs> I, I have no idea why he, he compared it to um confectionery but that that seemed to get the point across um because when they went into pitch meetings, they'd say to whether it was Italy or Morocco, or they'd say to the federations, would you send your players out with half a Snickers on the front of this sh- of their shirts? Because that's what your opponents are going to be doing. Um and he, he said it's it's more it's arguably more important. It's it's sorry, it's it's not important whether that is actually physically working or not. It's it's more that the players believe they've got this psychological benefit that outweighs any sort of minimum physical advantage um so that you know these are aspects that maybe people will not always consider um when they're designing these shirts another concept um he mentioned was that was which goes back to this common trend throughout is is the, is the they work on the basis of zero distractions um so one example they used was uh people love that the look of these retro collars on on shirts uh and an upright collar was was Eric Cantona's famous calling card in, in the early sort of Premier League years, um, but today's footballers find them a hindrance, which is why I think something like only three of the sixty Premier League shirts uh, used this season or last season featured featured these polo collars. Um, so, so there are there are aspects that essentially is, is is designing something that is either going to improve performance or just not hinder performance. Um, and, 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 Rob asked me a question at the time. He said, of all the, of all the jackets you've ever owned, which one had the best zip? <clears throat> and I, I mulled over it for a few seconds, but I, you know, I couldn't think of, I couldn't think of anything. Um, and, and he sort of said to me, he said, well, exactly. He said, now, have you ever had a jacket with a broken zip or a rubbish zip? And and I immediately darted back to an old super dry jacket that I had, that had the most frustrating zip that I could never get fully up to the top. Uh, and, and he sort of looked at me and he said that that's the perfect example of the, the zero distraction policy. If if you know if something's memorable, it's not always for the right reasons. He said that the best feedback you'll ever get is is no feedback. Um so you, you, there are a lot of considerations to, to, to that, that go into this and, and it's um it's often about juggling um uh, juggling you know like i said storytelling with function and performance it's it's not necessarily just about what looks great on 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 paper
1: mm. in a lot of ways that chapter and the idea of every single decision on the kit from the stitching to the heat transfer to the whatever, that level of detail, that intensity of imagining people in conference rooms, you know, talking for hours about all of these things um, is really different to the next chapter I'm about to ask you about. But that idea of you don't want to be memorable <laughs> because it's probably going to be for the wrong reasons um, is actually incredibly similar, despite the fact that um, I'm next going to ask you about motopilots, pilots. Uh, who are not in conference rooms, who are out in God knows what kind of weather, um, going up and down mountains, um, doing all manner of very difficult things, um, but in a lot of ways with kind of the same sort of goal of something, creating something that's functional, that is um, enjoyable and that doesn't mess anything up. Um, So can you walk us through the four skills needed to do all of this while also you know, being on a motorcycle, going up and down mountains and trying to film people on bikes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So for this chapter, I spoke to and spent some time with, um, media motors who are probably the the leading name when it comes to supplying motor pilots to top events in, I mean, the chapter mainly focuses on cycling, but they, they also do a similar job in, in, um, marathons and triathlons, any, any sporting event that requires a, a live tracking vehicle, you know, filming alongside. Um, and these guys get around. They told me they get around four inquiries a week from motorcyclists who've seen these motor pilots on TV and think I, I could do that. Um, and not all of these people are interested in cycling or marathons or even sport. Um, some are professional motorcyclists and trainers. Others, um, particularly in the in the states, come from law enforcement enforcement. Um, and and most are sort of casual hobbyists who just see it as a cushy way to get paid for riding their new motorbike. Um, uh, but media motors handle each application the same way. They send everyone a, a, a pie chart that shows four equal sections of, of what is required, which is obviously what you're referring to. Um, and the first of those is being an expert at carrying a pillion, uh, as obviously your, your passenger will be on the back either carrying a, a stills camera or a, a live TV camera, which comes with oodles of, of, of technology. Um, you also need to know the, the rules of the sport in which you're working. Um, for example, cycling motor pilots need to be credited by the, the UCI, the, the governing body for, for cycling. Um, you need to understand the, the requirements uh, of the production. Um, and then the last uh, slice of, of, of the pie is, is to simply be professional. Um, and the interesting thing was Media Motors told me that they can teach new recruits the nuances of each sport and the intricacies of the media but number one in four, so that's being an expert at carrying a pillion and being professional. They can't train. You you either you either have it or, or you don't. Um, but most of the motor pilots I spoke to had no doubt as to as to what it takes to to succeed. And and that is that um they're usually the ones who've been cyclists themselves. So Jason Jenkins was was um he works at, at Media Motors. It's his company. And, and he he used to be a, an amateur cyclist to quite a decent level. Um, and he knows what it takes to be a, amidst a, a peloton that is hurtling down, winding mountain passes at full speed. You know, it, it, he knows that um, it's capable of overwhelming even the most experienced motorcyclist. Uh, and so those who have been part of that are usually the best place to track it. Jason told me that he he, he knew when somebody was a, about to make a jump to go to go ahead. Um, you know, whether that's little little tells, little signs of, of leaning down and adjusting shoes, uh, and and he can notice the tells and he tells the director and says, This guy's about to jump, uh, he's about, about to make a move. Um, and and that would quite often result in the in the director, you know, ch- changing their their shot, what they were going to go for. Um, so it's quite easy to underestimate the the speeds involved. Uh, I I, I mean, I've been to a few, I was very fortunate to, to accompany, uh, Media Motors. I was in a car rather than on the back of a bike, but I, at the, at the, um, the tour of Britain, uh, for the book and it was fascinating. And, And I think you probably don't get an idea of just how quick a Peloton goes when it's at full speed, uh, until you see it. In, in person. You know, you turn up at the edge of a street and it's it's gone in the blink of an eye. It's not, it's not exactly the most thrilling of spectator sports unless you have the privilege that I there and you're able to track it in a car. Um but it's not just the public who underestimates the speeds. Uh in in uh, I think it was the tour of California, Jason uh was asked to go over and and advise a group of police motorcyclists who were gonna form part of the um the cycling caravan um, and, and he said that a lot of them were quite dismissive. You know, he said, you know, I've been riding this bike for years. You know, you know, some guy in spandex isn't going to overtake me. Um, and, and that same guy almost crashed, uh, because he, he didn't realize that he wasn't able to corner as fast as a cyclist can going downhill. Um, and he, he sort of went back to Jason the following day and said, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I get it now. Um, and quite often getting it isn't just about being able to um to track the cyclists when they're going at full speed it's actually just as difficult when they're going uphill um really quite slowly but you've got to maneuver a maneuver a two-wheeled vehicle tight environment it wasn't built for this you've got a, you know a, a camera operator on the back you've got oodles of technology you've got to go up a very steep hill at six miles an hour and then you've got all the crowds and and the noise around you and it's um it's not it's it's not for everyone, especially when you've got you know a hundred lunatics on, on on bikes chasing your your every move. Um,
1: and this is why yeah. they send out the pie chart. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can again, if you can answer all four of those, okay, then uh, that might that might be your next gig.
1: Well, speaking of getting it. Um, That brings us to the chapter that quite literally is about understanding and comprehension, I think maybe more than anything we've talked about so far, um, because you talk about football interpreters, which is interesting because we do see them sometimes at press conferences or on TV. Sometimes we hear them, for example. Um, But despite that, they are often quite invisible, which Mm. is interesting, given that we can literally sometimes see and hear them. Um, So I was particularly interested in this chapter to ask you to tell us a bit about um, not so much what they do, because I think that's relatively obvious, but maybe a few examples of how much you found that they can influence how people that they're translating for are perceived, um, Mm -hmm. particularly foreign managers or players in the Premier League. Um, I, I was really interested in that kind of influence aspect of the role of football interpreters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously, a um, you know, they have a big part, part to play now. It's the football in this country has gone completely global following the advent of the Premier League in, in 92. Um, I mean, before that, I think there used to be just one, one guy by the name of George Scanlon, a Scouser, who, who, he was fluent in several languages, but, but he, he tended to do most of. You know there were so few foreign players in in England that he tended to do most of of the work. He was there in um, 1966. He was chaperoning the Azerbaijani official for the um, the night before the the, the World Cup final. Um, that's the the man who would eventually become known as the Russian linesman who who awarded England that infamous goal against Germany. So there's a chance that uh, George Scanlon's charm was the reason England won the World Cup. I mean, I'm just speculating, but it's just a thought that I'd I like to, to consider. Um, but yeah, when he, he died in 2017, um, and by that point, you know, I think it was 1999 that Chelsea became the first British team to name a, a starting 11 entirely made up of foreign players. Uh, and so these days, interpreters in football number in the in the hundreds. But there is still a... Uh, I, when I was writing this this book, I realised there's still a, almost an ingrained snobbery in parts of the media if players, and especially managers, still use interpreters for any prolonged period of time. Um, Manchester City fans will remember that the Argentinian forward, Carlos Tevez, his acrimonious final years in England, saw so, so his, his struggles with the language men, mentioned quite often. As an example of his poor attitude, um, it was sort of deemed by the media that a player who has lived in a country for five years should be able to conduct at least a a basic interview in English. Um, But as I said, it it tends to be the managers who who are judged to an even higher standard because given their frequent media commitments, uh, and one one of the interpreters I spoke to for the book was an interpreter at West Brom. Uh, when the manager there, Spanish manager called Pepe Amel, he, 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 despite having an interpreter there, he still felt obliged to try his hand at the at, at English, e- even just a few weeks into the job. It was almost like um, he was conscious that if he answered in Spanish, it would look like he, he wasn't making an effort. Um, and then there were examples like uh, Argentinian Mauricio Pochettino, who who experienced the same pressure when he was Southampton manager in, in 2013. Um, There was kind of innuendo in in the press that you know he he wasn't making the effort that he had issues with his, whether it was attitude or or, or snobbery or something. It was just, but he was resolute. He would use an interpreter at press conferences. And at the time he said, it's because it gives him the security that when he has to answer complex questions, he can give complex answers. Uh, And he preferred to have an interpreter there to make sure that nothing was misconstrued. Now he... Led Southampton to to eighth in the Premier League, which was the club's highest position in a decade. So it showed that there were few problems with him getting his message across in training or with his players. Um, and eventually he was he was poached by Tottenham Hotspur. And at the time, the Daily Mail ran a story with the headline, Pochettino must speak English in public if he wants Tottenham job. Now there was no source cited, there was no direct quotes and you know looking at that you could re- we could well read it as an ultimatum from fleet street itself it's it's easier for a journalist in press or particularly on the radio if the manager is speaking in english it's 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 easier for copy um there's no hidden agendas there's still this element of within the press that thinks that some managers um, use an interpreter as a bit of a shield, a bit of a comfort blanket, that actually their grasp of the English language is better than their giving away. And from the interpreters I spoke to, they have a point. That, that managers have been known to use that as, um, as, a, as a bit of a, a shield and a, and a way of um, avoiding um, too much scrutiny. Um, so, I mean, cynics, you know, would conclude that having an interpreter is, is is a useful barrier to, to these probing questions. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the interpreters I spoke to obviously have a, have an, have their own agenda, but they do believe that, uh, you know, there have been cases where managers who've tried to speak English before their, you know, their, their language is up to the desired standard has perhaps resulted in, you know, an unfair reputation. Um, one example was used was Maurizio Sarri, who's an Italian manager. He's he's enjoyed a lot of success in Italy. He's known in Italy as as, as a coaching icon. In fact, he's he's known as having a brilliant mind. But because he um, he didn't use an interpreter in England, he he wasn't able to get that across quite as quite as fluently. And so over here, he's got a reputation as being a bit grumpy. Uh, they, they say that you know that he plays boring football. It it it's almost as if he wasn't able to get his full character across because he didn't use an interpreter. So um, shock horror, the interpreters I spoke to said you should always use an interpreter. <laughs> 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 of course uh, they did. Yeah, but it, yeah, there was there there was something. Um, th- there's definitely something still there within within the media. I'm, I'm sure some journalists, particularly in in the tabloids, may may disagree with me, but. Um, that, that's that's what I found when I was researching this story.
1: I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of a more ambivalent position on interpreters than I perhaps expected. Um, and the idea of barriers is not really one I had thought about, but kind of makes sense. I can see sort of maybe cynically. Uh, why that might be useful in certain situations for managers. Um, But in some senses, that's kind of exactly the opposite in the next chapter of kind of the reverse of my expectations versus what I actually found. Um, Because I must admit, when I read the phrase sports chaplains, I was kind of like, okay, all right, some (laughs) barriers there, barriers to entry perhaps, you know, sports chaplains for whom precisely. Um, And was very interested to read that, In fact, the chaplains you talk to, and it very much doesn't seem to be just kind of one or two, it does seem to be sort of the institution of sports chaplains in the UK, uh, to very much follow this phrase, quote, pastorally proactive and spiritually reactive, which seemed actually many fewer barriers than I had perhaps expected. So can you tell us a bit about what that phrase kind of means and what sports chaplains do with it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think you're right. Every every chaplain I spoke to pretty much used this phrase, and it's um, they they all come under the umbrella of Sports Chaplaincy UK, who oversee around 600 chaplains across British sport today. Um, and one of the things that came up regularly is, is I guess particularly for any of you American listeners, that the role in Britain contrasts quite sharply with the evangelical sports chaplains you might often see in US sports like the NFL. Um, uh, so this isn't the the sort of tub-thumping, chest-beating, larynx-throttling chaplaincy of the NFL, uh, which, you know, you, you do often get over the Atlantic where they, they slap helmets and, and kiss crucifixes at the centre of, you know, a 50-man huddle. Uh, by contrast, a, a British sports chaplain's place of work isn't the field of play. It's rarely even the changing room it's just uh, it's usually over lunch in the canteen, or, or perched by a, a massage table, um, or, or just you know in the ticket office with with staff. Um, uh, and and the idea is that it's just this is to be this presence, this regular familiar face. They'll say hello, they'll chat about the weather, they'll chat about you know the sport. But it's up to you if you want to go into anything in more depth. Um, and they do stress, every single one I spoke to, stress that sports chaplaincy is a service offered to those of all faiths or none. Um, and I think w- one thing that struck me as well is how keen they were to see how they don't treat the athletes any differently to anyone else on the club payroll. Um, so, you know, they, 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 there's, there's no judgment there. There's no There's no different tears which in a sports club in particular is they're probably the only people within that sports club who do that um you know and and, and they find that the issues um that, that these sports people encounter whether it's bereavements or illness or divorce or addiction are no different to 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 the rest to the rest of you know to the rest of rest of us um and and i, I guess that's where chaplaincy works because they're, they're trusted because they don't have ulterior motives um you know quite often uh elite sports people can't even trust their teammates 100 percent, which sounds perhaps peculiar when you talk about you know the strength of camaraderie but if you if you for example if you're a defender at a football club you can't necessarily fully trust other defenders in the, in the squad because you're essentially in competition for for the same place similarly you know there's there's this Hopefully it's getting better, but there's still an element of, if if you show that you have any sort of mental fragilities to your coach or your manager, they may deem that you're not set or strong enough to be in the team. So this is where chaplaincy comes in. They have a, you know, a, 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 there is no, um, they, it's completely confidential service. Um, so whether it's that your cat's just died that morning or something more serious, or actually, which is another point they wanted to stress, you know, they don't always deal with bad news. Um, Mary Vickers was the um, chaplain at a number of football clubs, and she also provided chaplaincy service at um, several uh, sports events like the Olympics, for example. And she said, you know, quite often, you know, they, they would just need somebody to talk to because they've just found out they're about to have a baby, but it's a bit too soon to tell the whole world, or they've just got engaged and they just need somebody to speak to. Or, um, there was one example, um, she gave, um, after, um, an Olympics and someone had just won the gold medal, uh, and rather than feel elated, they had this strange sense of despondency because they'd spent 15 years going for this goal and they've won the gold medal. And when they speak to the press, they are obviously required to be, you know, overexcited, exuberant, delighted. Similarly, when they speak to family and friends. And they didn't know what to do with this feeling of, well, what do I do next? I'm not really sure what my life means now. And so their first thought was, well, I'll go to the chaplaincy tent at the Olympic Games and speak to someone I've never met, uh, who I don't know. Um, And yet I'm going to bear my soul to them and perhaps never see them again. Uh, And and, and Mary compared that element of it to um, the Samaritans um, because, you know, it's, you know, because you 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 can you can you can be really quite thankful for that anonymity. You you know, you, like I say, you bear your soul and then you never see that person again. Um, so yeah, there, there's in the chapter it does go over the the two different types of sports chaplains, really. So you have the, the chaplain who's embedded within the club, who who is a familiar face, who you see almost every day, who you come to, to to know and trust. And then there are the chaplains who drop in at these events. So at London in 2012, there were 160 chaplains on the ground at the London Olympics. Um, uh, and, and, and that's almost a, a completely different skill set required. It's, uh, it's barbershop, taxi driver, small talk times, times a hundred really. Um, and now these days you, you get, uh, chaplains, uh, dedicated to, to UK gyms to even, there's one even in the, um, the Wimbledon queue at SW19. If you're queuing for Wimbledon tickets, you have access to a chaplaincy service, which just shows you how, um how far it's, it's come, really.
1: Yeah, that's uh, not exactly where I'd expect to find a chaplain. Um, but maybe if I encounter one there, uh, I'll be more willing to talk to them now that I understand kind of more <laughs> of what they're doing. Um, I want to kind of... This is the last chapter I'm going to ask you about. Um, and we're going to stay in the realm of football, uh, but move away from the people and uh, kind of go back very much to the beginning when you were talking about the Ryder Cup uh because of course the physical surfaces on which sport are played are not just a thing in golf uh they're very much a thing in football uh, i remember exactly where i was when i learned that uh football pitches do not all have to be the same size um and that that's somehow okay uh it still blows my mind years later so i was deeply amused intrigued uh to read your chapter about the groundskeepers of the football pitches, and there's quite literally loads of things I could ask about, but I'm going to stick to just one. Uh, we hear a lot about artificial turf, false pitches, um, all those kinds of things, and we hear lots of complaints about pitches up and down the football pyramid. Um, And a lot of us are familiar with this even from school, of fields that we may have had to play on, of, oh, we don't like that one. Um, And there's so much science behind this I was just completely not aware of. And a whole concept even, hybrid football pitches, which completely blow this artificial or real thing out the water. (laughs) Uh, So what exactly are hybrid football pitches? And What are some of the many problems that they solve about these complaints that I think a lot of us have heard and maybe even participated in?
0: Yeah, well, I think um, particularly football fans might, when when they hear the term hybrid pitch, they might immediately uh, cast their minds back to the sort of the late nineteen eighties with these controversial plastic surfaces that were that were seen at the likes of um, Queens Park Rangers and Luton and Oldham. Now it's it's not the same as that. They were banned in 1995. Um, the synthetic pitches today are, are a lot more sophisticated, and they work to strengthen the natural grass rather than replace it. Um, so there's a one of the, there's a, there's a number of companies now, but one of them's um, called Grassmaster, and that works by injecting 20 million plastic fibers into the base, 18 centimeters deep. Um, so that just two centimeters of each fiber protrudes from the surface and then the natural grass is seeded within that and then as it grows the grass the the roots of the, the natural grass entwines within the artificial strands and it anchors the grass and it creates a, a firmer and, and and more stable playing surface but crucially only three percent of that entire surface is synthetic um which the the ground staff i spoke to were, were you know, very eager to stress because you, you see hybrid pitch and people assume that it's these four G astroturf pitches that that we we all play sort of five aside on, but it, it's not. It's a, it's you know ninety seven percent of that is is still grass. Um, but crucially, um the hybrid pitches m- means that um increasingly now at football Stadia, that they're multi use. So we take Wembley for example. Not only does it have different sporting events there, like um, like the American football, the NFL, um, but it is also used for concerts and gigs. Whether it's Coldplay or U2 or whoever it is turning up to perform on 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 the pitch. Now, obviously, this doesn't do many favors to the, to the grass underneath. Um, but rather than having a re turf, ground staff are now able to just take off the these this top two centimeters of grass, remove all the weeds. Uh, and thatch and then and then you basically reseed and once reseeded, a pitch can be back to its its best within within weeks um so what was once the concert season once used to hold a lot of fear for for ground staff but no longer it means they now get a, a new pitch um and th- this is uh obviously something that's Still restricted to, I'd say, Premier League clubs and 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 uh, Championship clubs at the second tier. You know, the, the further down the football pyramid you go, you you're still finding sand and soil pitches um, that, that that are still struggling with with the um with the wonderful British climate. And and the chapter in the chapter, I do make it a point to speak to. Some of the the um, the ground staff who've worked at elite venues like the Wembley Stadium and, and the Stade de France, but also um, th- those who've, who've worked at, at, at stadiums a bit further down the pyramid, um, such as Accrington at, at Stanley um, and, and, and Crawley Town. Uh, so we, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a a, a, broad, a, a picture of 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 the uh, what they've got to work with,
1: and a lot of expertise developing. Um groundskeepers you were very uh, importantly dispel the myth in the chapter are no longer sort of purely old grumpy guys that say <laughs> get off the grass um and just walk around sort of raking things uh there's i mean as the hybrid te- hybrid pitch technology explanation exemplifies a massive amount of knowledge and science in this job now as well mm. um and i was wondering if you could maybe talk about kind of the efforts going on to train people up and um, that sort of thing going back to what we talked about with the athletic starters that there's not very much pipeline there I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the pipeline for groundskeepers
0: yeah I mean it's it's unfortunately it's a similar uh, similar story really that that um there there is not many getting into it um that there, there, there are attempts to encourage more people to, to get into it and and to emphasize that or to dispel some previous myths, I think there was, as you say, um, previously people thought of ground staff or, you know, it's predominantly a, a male industry, grumpy old men shouting with pitchforks. Um, actually it's these days, it's, it's a lot more to do with agronomy, uh, meteorology, business technology. Um, and you know, it's, it's more of a, of a, of a more rounded career. Uh, which ground staff these days are, are trying to get across. There are more women getting involved. Um, you know, it's it's, it's it requires a, an increasing amount of, uh, of qualifications to, to get there. Um, so yeah, there there is a, a misconception that um, you know some of the, the the ground staff I spoke to do <laughs> do mention quite a lot in, in language that I'll, I'll not use here. Um, But, um, you know, it's a genuine career now. Uh, And I think once people scratch the surface, uh, and hopefully those who've who've read the chapter will will understand that there's there's a lot more science to it now Um, uh, and and, and reflected in the fact that a lot of British ground staff um, have ended up in Europe uh, at some of the best and biggest stadiums um, in Europe because um, a lot of the innovation is happening in, in this country. Um, and is finding its way to Europe and, and, and the States as well.
1: Very interesting. Um, coming to a pitch near you, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe overselling it slightly, but who knows. <laughs> um, one thing I've really appreciated that you've uh, talked about throughout the interview so far is kind of a bit of the behind the scenes of your writing process uh, that has led you to creating these chapters. And so I'd love to close, uh, or at least my penultimate question, a similar sort of thing is there anything or maybe one particular thing that springs to mind that you came across in the research in the interviews in mm-hmm. the process of writing this book that really surprised you whether or not it's something that ended up in the book itself
0: um yeah i think i, I mean i've mentioned a, a few of the things that surprised me in terms of uh the people i met in terms of their you know their eagerness to speak to me and their desire to get across their passion and their hard work and hopefully i've done a job of that in the book but from a, a writing aspect um as i mentioned a couple of times i i began the uh, proposal to this and then started writing and, and and reporting on this through uh well through most of the what was it three lockdowns we had um and the difference between writing about the people I met in person versus those I was only able to meet on zoom, uh, really struck me. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, it, it, I suppose when I say it, it sounds pretty obvious that you get more out of meeting people in person than you do over a video chat, it, it, you know, but even from, um, the perspective of, 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 writing about the, the context, the background, what, what, what you know, um, body language, uh, I found that, and I, I won't necessarily say here because I don't want to give away, I found that when I was reading back, I think the chapters where I've actually been there in person and met the people are actually more effective uh, and and better than, than those that where I was um, restricted to, to video. Um, and, and so that's something that, that really struck me. Um, and I, I guess, um, I mean, I guess seasoned authors and, and, and writers will 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 know that already but I think in in terms of this book as well is that obviously each chapter is self-contained narrative um it, it kind of emphasized that point even more for me when I was reading it back I was thinking yeah well I, I know that one is the one where I, I spent you know 12 hours of this day with this person and and it really comes across in the narrative whereas the other ones I was restricted to 45 minute interviews over three you know three separate days. I, yeah, so that, that that was the one thing from a um, from a writing perspective, from an actual putting the book together uh, that that really sort of struck with me, and that you know it means that going forward, if I do get the opportunity to do another one, um, you know, I, I'll certainly make sure that to, to get out and about, unencumbered by lockdown <laughs> restrictions.
1: Hopefully, at least. Yeah. Well, that's a very nice way for me to then ask my final question, um, which is that with this book now completed, is there anything you're currently working on, looking to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's related to this book that you'd like our listeners to be aware of?
0: Sure, yeah. I guess I'll take this opportunity for a a shameless plug of... um, So I've been been working on a podcast series uh, based on the book. So the podcast is also called Unsung. Um, And so far, I've done three episodes Um, as I said it's based on the books the the first episode is on athletic starters so if if you'd like to hear Alan Bell's booming voice um, you'll be able to do so on on that episode then I did one on uh, the football ground staff and then the most recent episode uh, is on the Winter Olympic snowmakers Um, and um, although the first four episodes are based on on some of the characters in in the book um, using some of the audio clips uh, from my original interviews uh, the idea is that it'll take on a life of its own, the podcast. And, and hopefully I'll be able to continue it with, um, with stories that, that didn't feature in the book. And, um, yeah, I've also got another idea for, for a book that I'd like to, to write one day. Um, as I say, especially outside of lockdowns, but, um, I I'll think I'll, I'll I'll keep that idea to myself <laughs> just for now, if that's okay.
1: Fair enough. Um, well, <laughs> listeners can enjoy your podcast. Um, they can obviously enjoy this interview um, and they can go read the book if they choose. Uh, it's titled Unsung, Not All Heroes Wear Kits, published by Pitch Publishing. Um, Alexis, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much.